0: Anyone who has kids will know that there are times when helping is not so helpful. Right? When your child is trying to help you do something, but really is just getting in the way. And the most helpful thing for him or her to do is to just let you do it. But there are times when it works, when it's worse. Now last week I had a go at lawyers, so just to be fair, and we tell you that doctors also sometimes do things that aren't so helpful. Because with, with some illnesses, the best treatment is symptomatic. Patients just need to rest and get better. But some doctors just stuff them so full of antibiotics that are not needed in order to be helpful. And then people get all kinds of side effects from the antibiotics and all kinds of problems result. Sometimes helping isn't helpful. And today's passage is one of those times. Abram and Sarai try to help God fulfill his promises with disastrous results. Now, God had made Abram some very big promises. If you've been here over the last few weeks, you, you know them. God promised Abram many descendants. God promised him the land of Canaan for his descendants to live in. And he promised him blessing. He would bless Abram And his descendants, and all those who blessed him he would bless, all those who cursed him he would curse. And through Abram, his descendants, all the nations of the world would be blessed. But there was a problem, wasn't there? We saw that last week. Abram and his wife Sarai were childless. Chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarai Abram's wife had borne him no children. Remember how Abram questioned God about this last time? Remember what God did then? He took him outside, showed him the stars, and said, So shall your offspring be. You can't count the stars. Well, that's the number of children the descendants you're going to have. And Abram believed God and God counted him as righteous as a result. Abram believed God at the time. He, and he continued to believe God, but still no children. Wait. Still no children. Waiting. Waiting. Still no children. In the meantime, Sarai is now post-menopausal. And she was buried. Here's the end of the opportunity for her motherhood. So what's happened to God's promise? Well, if Sarah is not going to be the real mother of the promised children, perhaps there's another solution. Perhaps God meant Abram to help the descendants in another way. Uh, Maybe they could help God fulfill the promise in a roundabout kind of way. And this way involves, 2nd half of verse 1, a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Now it says that this servant was Sarai's. She had this was Sarai's personal servant. Not like the many servants or slaves that are around the household. She's the one who is like, personally looking after Sarai. No doubt they were close. And no doubt Sarai trusted this woman. Now, Hagar was from Egypt. Remember how back in chapter 12 of, of Genesis, Abram had disobeyed God and gone down to Egypt. And Pharaoh had given him lots and lots of gifts, so he was, when he thought he was Sarai's brother, and those gifts included man and maidservants. savants well, maybe that's where they got Hagar from. Which is a big worry, isn't it? Anyway, Sarah's got this plan for Hagar. She says to Abram in verse 2, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now, that sounds pretty awful to our ears, doesn't it? It's just it's gross. You have sex with your wife's maid to get the children for your own. Terrible thing to suggest to your husband. It's a revolting thing in our culture, but not so back then. It would have been a perfectly acceptable thing, socially, unlike surrogate motherhood with IVF, that kind of stuff now. It doesn't make it right, but it wouldn't have had the yuck factor that we experience when we read it. Does that, that make sense? Yeah. Anyway, Sarai knows that, that God is the one who's prevented her from, from having a children. She sees Hagar, which, which she doesn't name by the way, just call her my servant, as the solution to the problem. See, in her mind, Hagar is my servant. She's mine. And so the child she bears will also be mine. Go into my servant, that I may obtain children by her. What did Abram do? In the verse 2, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. He did what she said. Can you blame Abram and Sarah? I mean, they're getting desperate. Ten years they've been in the land God promised them. Ten years they've been trying and waiting to conceive. Even that would have taken a lot of faith, given how old they were. But for ten years, God had not given them a son. So maybe, maybe, maybe this was the way to do it. Maybe they had to help God along. Verse 3, so after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. So Hagar was pregnant. She would be the the, the surrogate mother carrying the baby of promise on behalf of Sarai. And the obedient servant would hand her baby over when it was born and continue to be the obedient servant. Well, that's a bit naive, isn't it? People change. Especially when children are involved. Even today we keep reading in the media about disputes when, when surrogate mothers want to keep their babies. But with Hagar, there's even more. She has a new status in Abram's household. Uh, she's slept with Abram. She's officially a wife. She's the one who, at long last, is going to provide Abram with an heir, something he's probably been obsessing about for years. Something his old wife couldn't deliver. Pun not intended. When she saw she had conceived, second half of verse 4, she looked with contempt on her mistress. See, Sarai and Hagar seem to have very different ideas about what Hagar's doing. Sarai saw this as an extension of Hagar's servant duties, conceiving, pairing Sarai's baby for her. Hagar saw herself as the new wife of Abram, and the mother of his only child. Actually, she's a step up from Sarai. Doesn't have to listen to her anymore, and Sarah is furious and agitated. Her position in the family is under threat from the maid, and she lashes out at her husband. Verse five: May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me, poor Abram. You can feel for him at this point, can't you? I mean, she's the one who asked him to do this, and now it's happened, she's mad with him. But he shouldn't have let it happen. He was responsible to decide, and he, he shouldn't have done it. Yet Sarai was was just as much to blame. Abraham wants to reassure Sarai that as far as he's concerned, nothing's changed. Sarai's still the wife, In fact, Hagar is still nothing more than a servant. Sarai's servant. And so he says to her in verse 6, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. A blank check. What does Sarai do with this blank check? Well, she takes this blank check and she treats Hagar badly. Very badly. We don't know what she does, but it is so awful that Hagar makes a decision. And verse 6 continues Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. She fled from her. Now, just think for a moment. Getting pregnant by Abram would have been a great bonus as far as, as, as Hagar is concerned. Things are just becoming surprisingly good for her. Sarah's treatment must have been terrible to make her leave. And running away in that kind of setting, is not like, you know, going down the road back to mum's place. Hagar would have had nowhere to go. It would have been a very dangerous move. She out into the wilderness. Putting life and limb at very, very, very serious risk. Sarah's treatment must have been dreadful to make her do that. And yet Abram did nothing to stop Sarai and protect Hagar. Nothing. Blank check. Do as you please. He listened to Sarai with her idea of surrogate motherhood and by his inaction and permission was complicit in the mistreatment of her maid. Abram was a whim. And Sarai was I don't know if I'm allowed to use this word here. Let us skip it. You know, that's, that's disappointing, isn't it? Because Abram and Sarai, they are heroes of the Bible. They are people of God. But Sarah is wicked to a maid. Abram fails to protect her. They get involved in this not right business. It's very disappointing, isn't it? It's always disappointing when God's people don't live up to the name they've received. After receiving the righteousness from God that cometh by faith, and the people of God fail to show righteousness in their behaviour. You have been disappointed by the behaviour of other Christians? Ever given reason for other Christians to be disappointed in you as a man or a woman who bears the name of Christ, who has received the promises of God? I'm sure we all have had the experience both ways, haven't we? It's right to be disappointed because we should expect better from the people of God. On the other hand, while it's right to be disappointed, let us not be surprised Be as realistic as the Bible is. God's people, even the good ones, sometimes stuff things up really badly. And sometimes they can even act worse than people in the world. Be disappointed, but don't be surprised. Because sin is still in our hearts, even though we have the Spirit. The Spirit is leading us away from it, but we still have the old nature there. Still fighting. New thing, th- 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 Things will change. Real believers will grow. God will be at work to make us more like Jesus. That was actually going to happen with Abraham and Sarah. Later on they'll become much more mature and godly in the narrative. But, but now, even at their age, even after the promises of God, they're still like this. I'd say the one good thing in this story must be that it shows the Bible's accurate, isn't it? Right? If you're just going to make up a story about your ancestors, you're not going to make your highly revered ancestor to be a wimp and his great, your great ancestress to be this kind of terrible person, would you? Well, Hagar runs away from Abram and Sarah. That might have been the end of the story, you know.
1: Big mistake,
0: the other person leaves. Now, put the whole incident behind them and get back to the promises. But God's not going to let that happen. It's not going to be easy from now on. But God doesn't just care about the promises. He doesn't just care for Abram and Sarai. His goal isn't just to make life easy for them. Sweep everything under the carpet. Because he cares for Hagar as well. And so, he goes after her. And he seeks her. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her Hagar. By a spring of water in the wilderness, a spring on the way to Shur. Now, a couple of things to talk about there. The angel of the Lord could have just been an angel, right? That is sent by God, but in Genesis, often we find the angel of the Lord is somehow or other simultaneously God Himself and God's messenger. We find that in a few different times, right? distinct from God and yet identical with God. Quite a mystery, really. Can't understand that in Genesis. Maybe we have a hint of it when we get to the New Testament. where We discover that God the Son is both the messenger of God the Father and God. Anyway, the angel of the God found her at the spring of water in the desert. Spring, it says, um, on the way to Shur. That is actually, um, it's, it's on the route towards Egypt. Uh, presumably she's trying to get home. The angel of the Lord speaks to her. And he says, verse 8, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? Now, of course he knows, but he wants, he wants Hagar to say it. What is she doing here? And she does, at the end of verse 8, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. And the angel of the Lord says to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. That's a bit shocking, isn't it? You'd expect him to say, Oh, you poor thing, she's treating you so badly. Look, I'll help you get to Egypt, away from her. No, he says, you do the right thing. Return to your mistress and submit to her. Friends, we all know what it's like when people don't treat us properly. But friends, we we can't control what people do, can we? Can't make other people do the right thing. God won't judge us by what other people do to us. We're not not responsible for that. What we are responsible for is, is what we do in response. What we need to do is to keep on doing the right thing, even when other people are not treating us right. It's hard to do. Because our natural sense is bang, bang. We need to do the right thing. And God will reward us appropriately. God is our shield. And God does reward As the angel of the Lord tells Hagar to go back to her mistress and submit to her, he also, at the same time, gives her a promise. And it's a promise that's remarkably similar to one of the promises God made, Abraham. Look at verse 10. I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. God is going to give Hagar many, 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 many descendants. So many that they can't be numbered. Just like he said to Abram. Though you've noticed the other things that are promised to Abram, those elements of land and blessing, they're not mentioned here. No suggestion that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through Hagar. No hint that the promises to Abraham were going to all get past to Hagar. God wasn't going to save the world and, and reverse the fall through the sins of Hagar. But there was still a promise for Hagar. God still had a plan for him. And the angel continues in verse 11. Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Ishmael means the Lord heard, the Lord listened. Because friends, God listened. God heard, God noticed what happened to Hagar. He knew that she had been treated unfairly. He didn't promise her that Sarah would change her tune. But he did take notice of Hagar's plight. God listened. God heard. God noticed. Later on when Abram's descendants, the people of Israel, were slaves in Egypt, they in turn would be ill-treated by the Egyptians. Just like Sarai ill-treated this Egyptian. And their cry would go up to God. And God would listen to their cry and eventually rescue them. Exodus chapter 3 verse 9. It's about to come up on the screen. And behold the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. God heard. God noticed. Even later when Jesus came. He cried out to God the Father. In prayers and supplication. He was heard. And though he died. He still went through death. He was rescued from death and raised. Hagar, the Israelites, Jesus—all victims of gross injustice—and God heard the cry of all of them. And friends, God notices when we are treated wrongly as well. Sometimes we think no one knows, no one understands, no one cares. You think that? Remember the name Ishmael. God has heard. God listens. He really does pay attention when you cry out to him, even if you don't realize it. Like Hagar, he doesn't promise to give you relief straight away. He also tells you to do the right thing as you relate to the other party. But he does take care of your troubles. He does take note of And he will set it right in the end. Take comfort from that whenever you're oppressed, whenever you're treated unfairly. But take warning from that if you treat other people unfairly. If you exploit and use and harm and curse and and make life difficult for others. Remember the name Ishmael because God hears their cry. God listens to their trouble. The Apostle James warns the Rich people who exploit the poor in James 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have wrothed, and your garments of moth-eat, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, Will eat up your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord our hosts. God notices corruption, evil, and mistreatment, and God will judge. That is a warning for us. And that is why James is also able to say, in a few verses later, to those who are being injured, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. When Jesus comes, he will judge the world with righteousness. For God hears, listens to the cry of the oppressed. Ishmael.
1: Now the angel goes on
0: to speak more about Ishmael in verse 12. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. Now, if I called you a wild donkey, you'd probably be terribly offended, wouldn't you? Right? Uh, but this isn't meant to be offensive. It's not an insult, it's a description. It's a description of someone who, who lives like a wild donkey. It's someone who, who lives by himself in the desert, away from society. Lone ranger kind of person. And Angel continues in verse 12, His hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. There'll be friction with him and everyone around. And he shall dwell over all his kinsmen. He'll always be on the edge of society. Not part of it. Living in the wilderness with hostility. Not a really popular kind of guy. Right? But he doesn't care. That's, that's what he likes to be. And Hagar? Well, Hagar is happy that God has noticed her plight and spoken to her in it. And so in verse 13, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. Well, she says, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. She, gives, she calls God a name. She says, you are the God of seeing. Notice the change in Hagar. Part of the problem in Abram's house is the way that she gloated over Sarah. I thought she was so great, but we don't see this anymore here. She's, she's grateful that God has helped her. She calls him the God of my seeing. Because, because God has seen her in her plight. And more than that, In her plight, she has seen God. Because she said, truly I have seen him who looks after me. God looks after her, she has seen him. Because when she looked upon the angel of the Lord, she had seen the God who looked after her. Even when Abram failed to do so. Friends, where do we go to see the God who looks after us? Where do we see the God who has come to us in our plight? Of course, we see him in in the Lord Jesus, don't we? Who is both God and the messenger of God. And we see him primarily in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. We see his care for our plight. The terrible plight we were in. Great danger. Lost in sin. Heading for destruction and condemnation. And God gave his son to die for our sins. When we look at the cross, we see Jesus under the full judgment of God against our failures. We see God's love for us and his holy justice against sin. And we see in that love and that justice, perfectly God's character. And we see God. And when we look at the resurrection, we see the power of God, and we see the faithfulness of God to his promises. We see the victory and the assurance that he can and will see us through. And so in the death and resurrection of Jesus, we see the God who comes to us in our plight, Who has rescued us and looks after us every step of the way. So we see God in Jesus, and God sees us in our trouble. And the realization of that makes Hagar call God, "You are the God of my seeing." And Hagar's experience of the God who saw her also meant the renaming or the naming of this well where it all happened. Sixteen verse fourteen, the well was called Beer Lahai Roy, which means the well of the living one who sees me living one, who sees me. God had seen Hagar's plight, and had spoken to her in it. And just in case you're wondering, the fact that the name of the well starts with beer is no indication of what kind of fluid was drawn from it. So, Hagar went home. We don't know kind of reception she got when she went home. But in verse 15, she's she's well and truly part of the family. Hagar bore Abram a son. Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. No mention of Sarah here. Even though she's the chief architect of this plan. it's Hagar and Abram. Notice Abram calls his son Ishmael. So she's passed on the message from God to him. Or, somehow God made him do it anyway. The main part of the story, though, is not so much, I think, about Hagar, but the folly of Abram and Sarah in, in trying to help God fulfill his promise. Particularly by such dubious means. We can understand their reasoning, but it doesn't make it right. Because helping here, again, just just wasn't helpful. But again, you can understand, look look at Abram's age in verse 16. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar was born to Ishmael. Now, assuming that Genesis is counting numbers the same way as we do, Abram's getting rather old, isn't it, to be a first-time dad? God does seem to be leaving things rather late in the day. You can understand why Abram and Sarai really feel the need to hurry things up. To help him fulfill his promise, as it were. They got to the age and they can't produce children and they panic. But friends, that's the point. God's plan was to do the impossible. He wanted to make sure that when the child of promise came, it was absolutely clear that he was a product of a miracle. He wanted to be very obvious that Abraham and Sarah cannot produce an heir. And he was willing to wait until they were so old that they could not possibly do so. Because the child of promise must come as a miracle from God. Human beings cannot bring God's blessing on ourselves. God wants to make it very, very, very clear that he's the one who's doing it. And that Abram and Sarai are totally dependent on him. Child of promise must be like that. And the ultimate expression of that is in the ultimate child of promise. The one in whom all the promises to Abram were finally fulfilled, the Lord Jesus. Jesus too was conceived miraculously. Jesus too was conceived in the womb of a virgin. His conception in a virgin is more important than he was born of a virgin. Because the miracles in the conception not the birth, isn't it? Jesus is a miracle from God. Because human beings cannot produce a savior. Our savior had to be sinless and holy. He had to be fully human to bear human sin. He had to be fully God, so his death would be big enough to pay for us all. And we cannot, from among ourselves, generate someone who is sinless and holy, fully God, fully human, who can truly bear our sins and redeem us. God had to do that. It depended on him. It's completely dependent on his grace. The virginal conception shows that we, were totally, we are totally dependent yeah. on him. And the fact that the child of promise must come through a miraculous means uh, is a foreshadowing of that. And it's a, it's a picture of that. And it's a, a statement of our dependence on him. That's why it's so stupid to go and do it some other way. And there's another place where it's mirrored as well, in our own spiritual lives. Our own spiritual lives are a gift from God. We were dead in our sins with absolutely no way of saving ourselves, helping ourselves out of the mess we were in. God gave his Son to die for us. He gave us his Spirit to open our eyes to see him, enable us to receive by faith what we could not earn. Don't try to help God to save you and give you a new life. Don't add to grace and say, yeah, you trust in Christ but also do all these good works in order to be saved. Do all these religious things in order to be saved. Don't try and help God. If you're doing it then that's like Abram and Sarah. Helping doesn't help. The gift of eternal life doesn't come by working for it. It comes only through trusting in the Lord Jesus to do it for us. It's entirely God's work. It's entirely God's grace. We cannot produce it. We cannot earn it. We cannot give ourselves a new birth. Only God can. So like Abraham, we're totally dependent on